Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome to the third episode of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Today, we're talking about women's reproductive rights. During the Gilded Age, women that went into labor often donated their prized possessions. They wrote a will, named a guardian for a newborn baby if they should not live through the pregnancy. So high were the maternal mortality rates that roughly one in every 150 childbirths ended in a mother's death. And if you were a poor woman, that number was higher. If you were an African-American woman, that number was higher still. To put those figures into context, today, only one in every 5,500 women die, or no more than around 700 a year in the United States. Although death is the ultimate sacrifice, many mothers in the 19th century suffered with even worse postpartum wounds, physical and mental, and they never really healed properly. Things begin to change in the progressive era for all manner of reasons, some for the better, and some changes we're still grappling with today. And reproduction has such far-reaching consequences for society that any conversation about labor or pregnancy naturally leads us to question about human rights, medical standards, and the politics of gender. Just think about the national debates we have over abortion. How? where and who gets to make the rules about abortion are almost as hotly contested as whether women have the right to choose or not. And who can forget recent scenes that dominate the power dynamics of reproductive rights, like when Donald Trump signed an executive order withholding funds from international organizations that advise on abortion. Trump was flanked by seven men when he signed that order. The masculine optics echoed an equally masculine reality, that men make the rules for women when it comes to reproductive rights. There is so much more to this story, however. We are going to delve into the history of the eugenics movement in America, various progressive movements, and the transformation of medical education and practice. And to do this, I am joined by the remarkable Professor Barbara Schneider, who has written a remarkable book on women's reproductive rights in the progressive era called Corporal Rhetoric. Professor Schneider is in the Department of English, Language, and Literature at the University of Toledo. And as you can probably tell from the book title, language features prominently in how she understands American history. Feminism is an equally vital theme in her work. And if you have a chance, check out a super book chapter she wrote on Demi Moore's famous nude and pregnant appearance in Vanity Fair in 1991. Today's discussion revolves around the book Corporal Rhetoric, but I have no doubt that we'll stray into contemporary topics that are as complex as they are controversial. 
Welcome to the show, Professor Schneider. Thank you so much for inviting me. What are the major differences that you think a mother would have noticed in childbirth from the progressive era, or I should say from the Gilded Age to the progressive era? What changed in that period? Well, so I guess I think about the changes in, in probably three primary ways. Uh, the first change is probably that change that occurred from uh, childbirth in the home to childbirth in the hospital, only the the poor, only poor women um, and women without much assistance gave birth in hospitals. Women who could afford to had their babies at home. So so location is one. By the end of the progressive era, and I, I pin the end of the progressive era a little later than most people do. I take us past World War One, but by the end of the progressive era, more than fifty percent of women gave birth in hospitals. So my own grandmother is an interesting study in this. She had five children beginning in 1919 and ending in 1929. She had her first four children at home. The fifth one was born in a hospital. So, so the location shift is a primary change that they would see. They would also see a change in the conception of childbirth, kind of the, the cultural understanding of childbirth. At the beginning of the Gilded Age and, and prior to that, childbirth was seen as a very natural part of a woman's life. It was continuous with her life. And, and giving birth was kind of a feminine rite of passage. Women surrounded themselves with other women, with midwives, and they gathered their friends together before they gave child, before they had the child, because uh, motherhood was not only a rite of passage, but it was, um, it was deadly. Uh, one in, one in 54 live births resulted in a maternal death at the beginning of the Gilded Age. So it was, it was a fraught enterprise by the end of the progressive era. This is a medical technological event that is separated from the rest of a woman's life and um, managed largely by men um, because they had managed to get rid of most women physicians. So attendants, and, and it, was, it was very often obstetrical surgeons that that managed uh, delivery in hospitals. So, and very few women were ever surgeons. So, so location, cultural understanding. Um, and I think the third thing that, that women would notice about the thing is it moved from being a natural event to a, path a pathological event. So I think those three things would be what people would see differently. You do a wonderful job in the book of contextualizing the progressive era. Of all the historic personalities that you refer to, it seems that Theodore Roosevelt comes to the fore as a key figure. And you know I've written about Theodore Roosevelt, so of course I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring him up because I see him everywhere, it seems. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, how does Roosevelt embody the era? And forgive the pun. <laughs> That's quite all right. I, I, you know, I will admit that I descended to puns several times in the book. They're irresistible. Um, so for me, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with Roosevelt. There's part of me that has always admired his kind of briskness and his vigor. And what I, I think of as, as kind of a deep empathy I, that I see in Roosevelt. And so, and I also think that he, he participates in the kind of ebullience and optimism that characterized a good part of progressive reforms. And I also think that he's he's a perfect picture of a paternalism 
that pervaded that era. Many times kind of a benign mater- paternalism or, in, you know, he meant to be benign. But in his, you know, in his blindness to his own privilege and position. So I, I you know, I think he, he is a man himself who really embodied the, the conflicts and the cultural attentions of that era. Um, I think he's, I think he's entirely likable. You know, you can't help but like him, but you also have to be cautious when you deal with Roosevelt. I also think that he really wanted a nation that that was made over in the image of himself. And, and I mean that in a very embodied way. He celebrated the, the vigor of his own body. He wanted a nation that had a vigorous national body. Um, he celebrated his own productivity. You know, he was tremendously productive as a writer, as well as a statesman and a scholar. And he wanted a nation that was productive in that same way. His idea of conservation was that you you gathered things together and held them so that they could produce even more. And so I do think that Roosevelt is a, I think he's the perfect embodiment of that era. I think that's great. I think there's um, some further context to add there too, just that he himself lost his wife uh, in childbirth, which um, is, a, is a remarkable bit of empathy that I think you, you talk about. And the efficiency movement that your book deals with is just fantastic. If, if we wanted to play six degrees of separation between TR and Abraham Flexner, who's going to devise the sort of standards for medical practice, he, Roosevelt's close friends with Henry Pritchett, who is the head of the Carnegie Endowment, who basically gives Flexner this leeway to devise the, the standards. What role do you think that does, does Flexner play in standardizing medical education and what advances or drawbacks come out of this standardization? Well, so, so Flexner was uh, funded by the, uh, the Carnegie Foundation to produce the Flexner report. Um, to, and so he, to do this, he went out and examined medical education at a number of universities nationwide. It was really a, a fairly impressive study that he conducted in its, in its breadth and in its depth. In his report, then he recommends guidelines for how medical schools should be grounded. One thing that he, was, that he really thought was critical was that physicians be trained in clinical settings. The medical student following a doctor around to homes and sitting at bedsides with patients was an inadequate preparation to uh, practice medicine. So he was very dedicated to, and he was also very invested in what he thought clinical uh, technologies, including laboratory tests could bring to the practice of medicine. And he wanted to, to foreground those and to assure that those became an increasingly important part of medical practice going forward. So he wanted physicians trained in that. He also, however, wanted to assure that only medical schools that had access to hospital training and and clinical spaces were sustained going forward. And that took a lot of money. And and because of that, the women's uh, colleges, most of which were proprietary and didn't have, they didn't have as much access to hospitals. The same was uh, true of the uh, the historically black colleges and universities that trained um, African-American physicians. They too, for the most part, 
lacked access to the clinical facilities and the, the clinical settings that Flexner mandated as part of his continuing education. So it really, really constrained access to medical school for um, women and for uh, people of color. He did think that there should be uh, some, some medical training for uh, African-American doctors so that they could serve African-American people. And he thought really what they should teach them was hygiene um, because you know that was, that was what they lacked in medical care. Um, so his, his own dispositions and prejudices so influenced his findings. On the other hand, uh, training in clinical practice did eventually, not right away, not right away, but eventually it did improve mortality rates for women. You know, mortality rates for women in childbirth didn't go down during the progressive era. Infant mortality rates went down. Women's mortality rates didn't really start going down until the introduction of sulfur drugs, like in the 30s. Um, so they didn't do much to improve medical care for women. They did a better job of saving babies, which was their primary goal. Women were always saving women it was secondary. You saved the babies. I have to say that some of the, the standards that I read about seem absolutely contrary to reason today. And, and I, I can't imagine they would make any sense back then. Male physicians were told not to look at women's undressed bodies or to have conversations with women about their symptoms. I mean, how did a doctor diagnose women? Well, and so this, this that a lot of that was was preceded Flexner's report. Well, there were modesty conventions. And so in order to protect woman's modesty, um, so if they did an examination of a woman's body, they did it while she was fully clothed. Um, and, and they would ask her to tell her story, um, but they didn't ask after specific symptoms because it would mean she had to, you know, name body parts. God forbid. Um, and so they mostly went, and you can read this in some of the, the early uh, case histories in the uh, Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, they mostly went by what her face looked like. She had a collapsed look, you know, must be an ectopic pregnancy because she had a collapsed look. So, um, so women physicians in, 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 at that point actually had an advantage because women physicians weren't constrained by the same modesty conventions because a woman could talk to a woman about precisely what was going on with her body. And a woman could look at another woman's body without there being any violation of modesty conventions. That's why midwives were commonly used to deliver babies because they understood how a woman's body worked in ways that many physicians just did not. I think the, the, the machines and the medical equipment that you mentioned are really important to bring up now too. It seems a good segue, especially because you mentioned in the book, the machine that goes bing, which is of course a reference to Monty Python, the meaning of life. How do these technolo technological advancements change childbirth, both in terms of the act of giving birth and the way we consider it as a natural human event? So, so medical technologies are just emerging at that time. Some of them had been in play before, you know, they had stirrups of various kinds going back, but, but what we recognize today as the gynecological syrup, stirrups that are screwed into the end of an examining table, you know, where a woman is supposed to just automatically assume the position um, became very popular during that era. 
And they, um, in many ways, they, uh, so they changed the position a woman was in when she gave birth. Birthing chairs had been much more common where a woman actually was in a crouched position as she, as she gave birth. Um, or she was, she was held by, she had women holding her from behind in kind of a sitting position and women in front of her that helped deliver the baby. So the, um, the bed equipped with stirrups uh, put her in a prone position with her legs up much easier for the physician, right? Because then they could sit at the end of the table and, and do whatever he's going to do. The vaginal speculum also helped them see into, you know, this is that increased legibility of the body. Uh, the speculum, you know, was used to spread the vagina so that they could see better into it. But I think my favorite technology of the um, of the era was the x-ray machine. So the x-ray was invented in 1895 and it kind of quickly gained a privileged place in obstetrical medicine because they would x-ray a woman uh, when she was in labor in order to get a good picture of her pelvic structure, of her bone structure. Um, and if they decided it was inadequate to deliver the baby, then they could perform a pubiotomy, which meant that they then clipped her pubic bone, they severed it. So they could, you know, it's easier to get a baby out that way. And they would sever her pubic bone and, and extract the baby. And then they would plaster the pubic bone back together and hope she recovered. A number of women were left, you know, permanently debilitated by this, you know, they, they couldn't walk properly after this kind of a procedure. Um, infection was rife. This was before sulfa drugs. Um, they often had urinary uh, difficulties after giving childbirth. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the big takeaways I think from the book is that this transition from a natural thing to pregnancy being a pathogen, it means that the way women are treated is, uh, is, is so different. How do doctors treat pain for women? Because at some stage, you know, these procedures that you're talking about are going to cause immense pain. How do they deal with um, pregnant women that are in terrible pain? Well, so they're, and, and I will confess, I don't know whether this is all that was available or if, if it was simply their practice. Uh, usually they, they would uh, give a woman chloroform, right? Just knock her out. So she doesn't make noise anymore. Um, and what was interesting in, in that pain treatment, one of the things they came up with was what, what we knew as twilight sleep. And twilight sleep was a, a mixture of chloroform and um, scopolamine, you know, truth serum. And while it didn't render women free of pain, it erased their memory of pain. Um, so women could give birth and doctors could, you know, do whatever they wanted, knowing that the woman wouldn't remember most of her experience. And interestingly enough, women themselves thought, oh, this is fabulous. I had this baby and I didn't have any pain. And so there was a, and doctors began to question because it can really prolong labor. If you give a woman too much anesthetic, including scopolamine. Um, so they began to question the efficacy of, of those kind of anesthetic treatments during childbirth. But there was a campaign led by a couple of women, um, both in Britain and in the US to you know, bring on the twilight sleep. You know, why shouldn't we have 
childbirth that was pain-free. So, uh, and then, and pain after childbirth was something women were supposed to deal with uh, by being brave and by being grateful that they had a child. Um, so there really wasn't a lot, a lot of, of pain medication available. Hard to believe it's only a hundred years ago, really. Um, well, the, the book Corporate Rhetoric has a chapter dedicated to Margaret Sanger as well, one of the most prominent figures of this time. Um, born in New York to immigrant parents, she worked as a nurse in downtown Manhattan's Lower East Side. A socialist and a feminist, she led the campaign for birth control. But what I really need to hear about Sanger, I could do a whole show on Margaret Sanger, I think, but her life seems to intersect with so many others, including those in the African-American community and in the legal profession. So can you tell us why Sanger is so important to your story? Well, so, um, yes, yeah, Sanger, like, like, um, like Roosevelt, is a really an iconic figure for this era. Uh, Sanger predicted in Woman in the New Race that the birth control movement would be an epoch-changing an epoch, E-P-O-C-H, right, um, moment in uh, Western civilization. And in many ways, she's right. You know, the, the introduction of, uh, of widely available um, and reliable, that, and that's, that's a key point, reliable, because there had always, I mean, since women were born, I think there have been methods of birth control, um, but reliable, um, methods of birth control um, have changed. You know, they've, they've changed the whole fabric of Western culture. Um, so she was, she was critical in ushering that in. She also was, she was so deeply involved in so many of the movements early on in her, in her socialist days when she lived in New York. Um, she had a salon that was attended regularly by, by leading socialists of the era. And she herself adopted the, uh, the anarchists, you know, no gods, no masters um, for her masthead when she was publishing uh, The Woman Rebel. Um, you see that, that socialist radicalism gradually tempered over the years as she had to build allies in order to build the birth control movement. And so she had to take on both the medical community and the legal community in order to, which you know were formidable fields to take on. And she was, as they would say in today's culture, just a nurse. Yeah, so Sanger was was important. She took on, she took on really big battles. She also got mixed up in certain ways um, with, with the eugenics movement, although she was kind. So she was interesting. A lot of um, African-Americans took her investment in eugenics to be a racist thing. Um, but a number of black feminist writers say, you know, she's, it's kind of mixed on the record there because she went into black communities at the invitation of, um, of black women club leaders who, because like white women, they wanted access to birth control too. Um, so, so I'm not ready to condemn Sanger as a racist. That's what tends to get me between your, the, the depiction of Theodore Roosevelt as this enigmatic character is mirrored very much by Sanger, who, who is as enigmatic. I mean, she's a eugenicist. She's not an abortion advocate. 
She seeks to care for women, but she also has some of the, shares some of the prevailing views about pregnancy as pathology. And she's a mother of two children, but she, she decries overpopulation. So how, how should we read her polemics? Well, and, and she actually had three children, you know, one of them died. Um, in fact, it was kind of in consideration for her grief over the loss of her daughter um, that they dropped the lawsuit when she returned to the U.S. Um, so how should we read her polemics? So I think, I think we need to remember that Margaret Sanger was a master publicist. She knew how to, and she had to be, she had to be good in order to take on the big battles she bought. So she knew how to generate press. She was really good at it. Um, and if it meant staging a scene and airing the anger, she was more than happy to do so. Um, and in this way, uh, by being so flamboyantly public and, uh, and generating publicity anywhere, as far as Sanger was concerned, any publicity was good publicity. Um, so, so I think in many ways, um, it was just a strategy for her. I think Sanger was probably a, a very thoughtful woman who, uh, who generated that kind of polemic and got invested in it out of, of, of frustration and um, anger. And, and I, I think she deeply loved being a mother. Um, but I also, you know, there was this part of her too who, who thought that motherhood was valuable to her because she chose that. And she encountered too many women that, that didn't necessarily choose it and couldn't afford it. I mean, let's, let, I mean, this is one of the things that, that we know is that raising children is, it's expensive. They just, you know, they need food, they need diapers, they need daycare, they need preschool, you pay for sports. You know, do you know what toe shoes cost? Um, so children are incredibly expensive adventures. Um, and, and all persons will shield themselves from that kind of ongoing economic drain, particularly if they can barely feed themselves, which a lot of the women that, when Sanger worked as a nurse, that's, those are the women that she served. And it deeply affected her understanding of uh, reproduction and, and childbirth. Because without reliable birth control, women, women really were at the mercy of, of their own reproductive capacity. I think that's, that's fascinating. And they, they stopped becoming independent in a sense because financially they, they can't be. And they're, 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 you know, their children are um, in some ways a literal drain on them uh, in terms of finances. There's another chapter though that you have on Lillian Gilbreth, a mother of 12 who's described by one journalist uh, as a feminist and a genius in the art of living. Can you tell me why Gilbreth is important uh, to your narrative uh, on efficiency and how she contrasts with others like Sanger? Oh, I love this. So, so this is interesting. I can't think of two people more different than Margaret Sanger, who was so flamboyant, and Lillian Gilbreth, who was so circumspect. Um, and they came up in very different circumstances. Uh, so Lillian Gilbreth is, is critical to an understanding of this era, first of all, because she was very deeply involved in the efficiency movement. She and her husband, Frank, during his life, um, worked very closely in the early days with Taylor. And they did, they did uh, time and motion studies uh, to show how to better use your body 
to uh, accomplish a physical task, um, which Taylor made great use of. Um, but but their interest, and, and really you can see Lillian's interest here. Um, she was really interested in the psychology. I mean, that was her, her degree was in psychology and she applied it to industrial settings. Um, but she was really interested in exhaustion of the body, uh, the health of the body, and the happiness of the body. She used to talk about efficiency as something that you used in order to produce more happiness minutes. You know, how can you get through a routine task as quickly and with as with the least amount of exhaustion possible so that you have more time for leisure? So she was really interested in the creation of, of leisure for people, um, which was not something that uh, Taylor was at at all interested in. Um, and I think another key difference that, that Gilbreth introduces to um, efficiency studies and to scientific management is scientific management really ranked individuals. You had the management class, you know, that, that, that took the knowledge of how workers worked and then redistributed it in a new and alien form to their workers. Uh, Gilbreth saw much more flexibility between who could be a manager and who could be a worker and actually thought kind of everyone could, could manage themselves in many ways and could learn. And what she wanted to teach people was, was to learn for themselves how best to manage. Um, and as you know, there's a, have you ever seen the movie, The Cheaper by the Dozen? There's some. Yes, of course. Okay. So there's a marvelous moment in that movie where uh, Frank Gilbreth, who's the father of these children, answers the door. And it's a, um, a woman who is from the birth control league that wants to speak to uh, Lillian Gilbreth because she's heard that she's a management whiz, which she is. And she's a very, a very prominent club woman at the time too. Gilbreth has, and I'll talk about her pedigree in a minute. Um, anyhow, so, so Gilbreth asks this woman, I think her name is Mrs. Mabane or something, in and and uh, and he and so they're having a conversation with this woman about, you know, how how important birth control is, and you know that she understands that Mrs. Gilbreth will be just the uh, perfect person for this, and and he does his whistle that he used to, you know, marshal the children, and all the children come running down the stairs, and she's aghast. Um, so it's that moment of confrontation between the birth control movement and this mother of 12. Um, so Lillian Gilbreth, I think, represents the positive side of eugenics. Now, Lillian Gilbreth was just exactly the kind of woman Teddy Roosevelt was looking for right? She was happy. She was healthy. She was wildly productive. Um, but she had the means to be so. So Lillian Gilbreth grew up in California. Uh, she was, her family was very well off. They were very well educated. Um, she herself earned a doctorate at a time, although it was, that was the challenge because many schools would not admit women to doctoral programs. Um, so she had been very well, uh, uh, she was raised with means and the means to education. And she had the means to have a large family and support them well. Um, she also had her mother-in-law living with her uh, through most of her child rearing years. And she had household help. 
So she could carry on her work and because she had a lot of support to do so. Um, on the other hand, she, as a professional, she had to battle, um, you know, against the paternalism of the workplace when, when Frank died and there was, there's, you know, the examination of the historical record makes it quite clear that, that she's responsible for the time and motion studies as much as Frank was, um, that they were truly partners in that and that much of the writing may actually have been Lillian's, um, although she's not credited for it. And when she published her book, they had her publish it under her initials for her first name because they didn't want people to readily recognize that it was a woman that wrote the book. Um, but when she went back to com companies that they had worked with, um, after her husband died, she couldn't get a contract because she was a woman. And the, uh, the Society of Engineers rejected her, initially rejected her application because she was a woman, uh, not because she hadn't contributed importantly to their work. Um, so, and then, she, you know, and, and she had to make a living. So, so she turned to domestic engineering. Great. I mean, she's she's a remarkable character. I think between between her and Sanger and and Roosevelt, we get this picture of the progressive era that is, I think, in your own words, you use anxiety quite a lot. Um, and I, I wonder, do we do we rename the progressive era the age of anxiety? It seems like what, from your writing, that's that's what it should be called, right? Well, so yeah, the progressive era is interesting. It's got this overlay of um, kind of opulence and and um, optimism and ebullience. And then there's this undercurrent of deep anxiety about uh, all of, you know, the rapid changes in the makeup of the nation. You know, we, we were going through massive immigration and the people coming to our country, you know, they weren't white. No, I take your point. I mean, I think the, the anxiety that you use as a word is wonderful. And you start your book with this really horrifying quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes. And I'm just going to uh, briefly allude to it here, but it says that it would be better to sterilize feeble-minded people than allow them to reproduce. I mean, how have the progressive era courts played a role in reproduction, public health, and social progress, whether it's from miscegenation laws or sterilization laws? How, how have the courts played a role? Well, so, so, you know, the courts can be progressive, but they can also be a deeply conservative force. Um, and, and so they, and in miscegenation laws, they, they played a deeply conservative role. Um, you know, early on it, during the 1860s, prior to 1865, prior to the, um, or 1864, prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, um, African-Americans were not considered citizens. And so marriage between African-Americans and white people was prohibited on the basis of the fact that they weren't citizens and they couldn't enter into a contract. So then they become citizens. And then the law decides that, well, it's true, they're now citizens and they can enter into a contract, but marriage is a contract of a different kind. So they change, so the courts change the definition of marriage in order to maintain uh, this marriage separation between the races in America. So in that case, and they upheld miscegenation laws over and over again um, in order to, to maintain, you know, in order to conserve the supremacy of the white race in America. Um, and then when labor laws uh, 
probably the most notable case for labor laws is Mueller versus Oregon. Um, and this is an interesting case because women were on both sides of that fight. Uh, it was uh, Florence Kelly and Josephine Goldmark that really authored the brief that was delivered by Louis Brandeis that argues for um, a difference in the treatment of women in the labor market. And uh, Alice Paul and the women on the National Women's Party that argue against the differential treatment of women in the labor market. And what, what Goldmark and Kelly were really after was they were trying to get not equality, but equity for women, recognizing that women were already saddled with these extra domestic cares, that they, you know, they had so many other things they had to attend to besides just their job, that they really needed some protections in the workplace. Um, Alice Paul and the women in the National Women's Party recognized that once women began to be treated differently, that difference was gonna be a deficit. Um, as indeed it worked out, it took a very long time to dismantle lots of the uh, protective labor legislation um, that resulted from Miller versus Oregon. So, so, that was, so that was an interesting moment in uh, legal cases. And then of course the Oliver went the, the sterilization laws um, they reached the Supreme Court in 1927. Now there had been sterilization laws on some state books and allowed it in some locales prior to that. Um, but when Oliver went, when the case of Carrie Buck makes it to the Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes makes it a national right. It, it, he hands down the opinion from the Supreme Court and it becomes the law of the nation that people institutionalized uh, for being feeble-minded or socially unfit can be sterilized at the behest of the institution. Um, and those laws remain on the books. You know, they gradually come down. I don't think the last one was taken down though until the late 1970s uh, because persons that had been uh, diagnosed with, you know, with mental disability were routinely sterilized. Um, up through the 60s and 70s. I mean, it just became a routine thing. You just, you know, you make sure they don't make any more like themselves. And that, you know, that's a completely eugenic um, solution there. I mean, it's a remarkable quote to think that this is a Supreme Court justice basically writing the law of the land. And it's it's just an incredible book because it takes us from childbirth to uh, you know, to the White House, uh, you know, the, the high politics of it all, but then also to, uh, you know, the day-to-day -day life of, uh, of Mother of Twelve. And it's just a remarkable book. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to uh, explain it in greater depth. And I think it, it leaves a lot of questions uh, for, for other historians to probe about women's studies and about medical humanities. I can't encourage everyone enough to go and pick up this book because even in this this show, we, we, we can't really delve into the depths that are there. It really is a tour de force with very, very deep research. I, I have to ask you this on a personal note, how long were you researching this book? Because it looks, it's, oh. it's, it's, it's so oh, rich. It, it looks like years to me, yeah. It, it was years. I actually began some of this research um, like 20 years ago. And, and so I started it and I looked at it and I had some ideas about it and then I got sidetracked um, and, you know, took up a number of other pieces of work. 
Um, and then came back to this, honest to God, I came back to it full force about six years ago. I just had a look. It's 200 pages plus then in addition to all the footnotes and indexing. 200 pages to get that much in there. It really is remarkable. And thanks so much for, for sharing it. Everyone should go out and buy the book. It really is wonderful. Thanks so much, Michael. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.